and I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Joseph Aram, who's the Herman and Louise Smith Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina, where he's also the Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Director of the Clinical Corps of the UNC Center for AIDS Research. He's also the Vice Chair of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, and his work is focused primarily on the study of HIV with particular attention to clinical development of combination antiretroviral therapy uh, and many other things. Um, Dr. Aaron will talk to us about current antiretroviral drugs and strategies for HIV management. Over to you. Yeah, great. Um, thanks, thanks, Elaine, um, for, for introducing me with that very kind introduction. And also, uh, I thank the, the uh, ISUSA for, for inviting me to, to talk. Um, I will talk to you about uh, interval therapy at Croy, and we're going to talk about what did le we learn about what we've got, meaning I'm going to talk about uh, studies that examine drugs that um, uh, kind of we have right now in our, in, our, um, uh, in our pocket to use, not, not on drugs under investigation, here are my financial relationships. Uh, these are the learning objectives. You can read them, but um, uh, we're going to go over uh, uh, changes in time from entry to care to antiretroviral initiation over time in the any accord study. We're going to look at outcomes in a, at a very, um, uh, I think, important uh, pediatric study. And then we'll uh, contrast the results of, a, of the Nadia trial with guideline recommendations for second-line therapy. So um, uh, off, off we go. Um, so, uh, I'll start with just initial treatment with antiretroviral therapy. Uh, what did we learn? There was this very nice study, uh, from, uh, the NA Accord. NA Accord is a very large, um, uh, collaborative cohort. So it's a, a whole, uh, uh, more than a handful, a, a large number of, 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 of observational cohorts in North America. Uh, that gather data on people being treated for, for HIV. For, so for this particular analysis, they looked at almost 12,000 treatment-naive adults um, who had not yet had AIDS, and this was across 13 sites uh, in their uh, group that had these data reliably. Uh, the population was 14% uh, women, 45% black, and, and, and about a third uh, Latinx. Uh, and, and the idea was to look at over time, how are we doing in, in terms of um, uh, time from entry to care uh, documented by a, a lab test or a, or a visit that, that suggests the person had entered care with documentation of starting therapy. And, and I think what, what this is showing us is, is that over time, we're, we continue to do better. So, so this is 30 days is the scale here, and it goes from 2012 at the bottom to 2018 at the top. And, and what you can see is that in, in 2018, about 80% of people, a little bit over 80% of people um, had uh, begun therapy by 30 days. And um, if you look, about 50% um, had uh, begun therapy within 10 days. So this is a, a, a substantial Im improvement over time and reflects our desire to get people on care, on therapy as soon as possible. And clinics are now being set up to, to carry that out. And, and what you might not find surprising, but I think is overall very good. There really 
now in 2018 really is no difference between people with low CD4. Again, it's um, now um, uh, close to, to 90% uh, um, uh, that are um, uh, started on therapy within 30 days and, and very similar even in, in people with very high viral loads. Um, what's different is, of course, uh, in 2012, we, 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 we weren't really in a rush to start people with uh, CD4 greater than 500. And now, uh, because of the benefit uh, that was seen in the in the START study and the benefit in terms of prevention that was seen in 052 and, and a lot of observational work in the uh, partner study, et cetera, um, it, we really are moving towards that. So I think this really reflects, you know, pretty substantial success. Um, when, uh, I don't have the slides here, but when this group looked at um, uh, disparities by race and region, um, there was improvement. In other words, the, the South, I'm in the South and, and um, uh, you know, we're always a little slow, we're always a little behind. Um, and uh, the, the South was much slower uh, to, to get people on therapy more quickly in the um, early, uh, uh, you know, 2012 to 2014. But over the last time period, um, uh, that difference, the South compared to other regions has, had really lessened. And the same by race. There was a clear disparity, blacks versus uh, whites. And, and that um, has improved over time, uh, though they're not identical. Um, so there's still, there's still work that, that needs to be done. But we're, 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 certainly, we're certainly getting there. Well, what about initial treatment with, with drugs that we have? Um, there, there weren't a lot of um, studies, but um, there was the long-term follow-up of the Gemini study. Um, most of you probably recall that Gemini was actually two studies that compared dolutegravir 3TC with dolutegravir TDF-FTC uh, uh, in treatment-naive adults that had viral loads less than 500,000. Uh, it was a, a, a double-blind study through 96 weeks and then an open-label but comparative study through 144 weeks. And I think basically what we learned is that um, uh, the two-drug therapy remained comparable uh, to the uh, three-drug therapy. You can see the numbers here. For some reason, Gemini 1 was slightly different than Gemini 2, where things were virtually identical, and overall the pooled results were very similar. So on average, about 80 to 84 percent of people remain suppressed on therapy um, over 144 weeks, which obviously is almost uh, three years' time. And then if we look over here, um, uh, to the right favors uh, the two-drug therapy, to the left favors um, three-drug therapy. And you can see most of these dots are on the line. Maybe a suggestion that women do slightly better with three-drug therapy, um, uh, and maybe uh, African-American or, or, or Black or African heritage, maybe. And this, these are not um, multivariable analyses, um, uh, many of the women on the study were black, so, so um, uh, this may be measuring something similar. Um, but in general, the dots are, are, are along this line, and, and no difference is statistically significant, and, and the confidence intervals are quite wide. So, so I think uh, uh, in, in people who uh, uh, have viral loads less than 500,000, who don't have hepatitis B, keep that in your mind, don't have active hepatitis B, a two-drug therapy is quite reasonable. There was one participant, so one participant out of 1,400 participants did develop resistance in this uh, uh, total in the whole study. 
Um, the person happened to be on the um, Dahlia Tegra 3TC arm, um, and it happened in the last uh, this last year uh, of analysis. But it's really quite remarkable. 1,400 people followed for uh, uh, three years in and one one episode of resistance. So, so again, um, kind of building on uh, a little bit of what um, Sue Swindell's talked about. Dahlia uh, um, Tegavir, and, and I'm sure we could find similar data with Big Tegavir, very, very, very um, resistant to resistance. Um, and this is another question that comes up. This is a, this is a study uh, looking at again, kind of standard therapy though. So Dahlia Tegavir, Bacavir, 3TC, I think is coming, becoming somewhat less of a standard. Uh, these are two large blinded treatment naive studies that compared uh, BFTAF with either Dahlia Tegavir, Bacavir, 3TC or Dahlia Tegavir, uh, uh, FTAF. Um, uh, these studies have been read out multiple times. The results uh, have shown in the overall population that the, these regimens are quite comparable. But in this particular study, um, what the um, uh, investigators did is they they looked at uh, people that had uh, resistance, and they they looked at um, both baseline resistance tests, and they also did retrospective next next gen sequencing uh, to see if there were any minority variants that were integrase resistant or um, minority variants that were either 3TC uh, uh, containing either 184V or uh, resistance to tenofovir. To, uh, uh, that, uh, as it turned out, was quite uncommon. Uh, people with TAMs were not excluded, so there were people with uh, thymidine analog mutations. Uh, there were a few individuals with, with um, uh, tenofovir uh, resistance, um, and there were a few individuals with some uh, mutations associated with integrase resistance. So I must say this T97A mutation is really more of a polymorphism. It, it's not that common a polymorphism. It does impact L-vitegravir susceptibility, um, but um, uh, it doesn't really have a substantial uh, impact on dalutegravir or, or uh, bictegravir. And of course, there people with um, uh, non-nuke resistance were allowed in the study, as were people with primary PI resistance. And all this talk, basically, uh, uh, the results are the same, whether you had any uh, transmitted drug resistance, any NRTI resistance, any primary uh, integrase resistance. Now, these numbers are real small. So this is this looks like a dip here is, you know, three out of four. So so I wouldn't I wouldn't put any stock in that. But basically, um, even using some next gen sequencing, uh, it doesn't look like um, uh, primary or 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 pretreatment uh, resistance or transmitted drug resistance, as it has been frequently called in the past, it really has any impact on um, a second generation integrase inhibitor plus two nucleosides. Um, uh, so uh, uh, it might argue that that that's not necessarily a test that we need. It's certainly not a test that we need to worry about. So it can be sent, and and obviously you could start um, these therapies um, uh, without worrying that you would somehow impact uh, the efficacy of these therapies for your patients. Um, uh, and then this is the the PENTA study. This is the PENTA, uh, which is a pediatric treatment group. Uh, they call this the Odyssey study. Uh, and, and this is something really hard to do. 
they did, and, and, and Dr. Abrams was, was part of this uh, uh, group, uh, I think an advisor to this group. They actually took children less than 18 and more than, more than 14 kilograms, which is about 35 pounds. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and this was in Europe, Southern Africa, and Thailand. And they um, did uh, 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 two randomized comparisons. These were either children that were starting um, uh, first-line therapy or switching to second-line therapy. And they were assigned either, depending on whether they're first-line to Odyssey A or starting second-line to Odyssey B, and then they were randomized um, uh, uh, one-to-one to either dolutegravir or standard of care for first-line. And in the first-line study, the standard of care was a Favrin's about 92% of the time, um, so so mostly a Favrin, so it's pretty much a head-to-head comparison with the Favrin's. And in second line, again, they're randomized one-to-one. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, three-quarters were on lopinavir, ritonavir, and one-quarter were on adazanavir, ritonavir. So it's really um, dolutegravir versus a, a boosted PI for second-line therapy. Uh, the follow-up was um, for uh, uh, 96 weeks. The primary endpoint was... Uh, uh, either virologic or clinical failure. In this case, that meant um, uh, an insufficient virologic response, so they don't go down by at least the log at week 24, um, or, or they have to switch to second or third line therapy, depending on which group they're in. Um, if they have a viral load greater than 400 after 36 weeks, that's considered a virologic failure. Um, and then, of course, death or, or new AIDS-defining event would be considered, considered a clinical failure. And what you can see, if you combine the two studies, um, the number of uh, failure events was 47 in, with dolutegravir and, and 75 with standard of care, so highly statistically significantly different uh, with a, a point estimate of about 8%. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, and then if you looked in, in treatment naive, strongly favored uh, dolutegravir initially, in the uh, second line, it uh, did not meet significance. It certainly favored uh, dolutegravir over a boosted PI, um, uh, but but did not quite meet significance. Clearly, um, uh, obviously non-inferior uh, in, in both comparisons. So um, a challenging study done very well uh, shows that in children um, from 35 pounds or so all the way up to 18 years of age, uh, either for first line or second line, uh, dolutegravir, uh, is at least as good. And then first line is, is I think clearly superior to an efavirenz based therapy. Um, uh, and, and these are, these are tough, tough studies to do. Uh, and, and I really congratulate the, uh, Odyssey team and, and, uh, with their success, um, in, in demonstrating, um, the, um, advantages of, of, uh, a second-generation integrase inhibitor in, in children. So what about antiretroviral therapy to maintain suppression? Um, uh, again, um, I'm just showing this. Uh, this is the uh, TANGO study. Uh, this study uh, uh, is um, uh, looking at uh, participants, patients who became participants on uh, a TAF-based regimen uh, there were 741, 
And then they were randomized to either stay on their TAF-based regimen, so it's a standard of care, or go to two-drug therapy with dolutegravir 3TC. Um, and, and what we're looking at here is the 96-week data. Now, it, this study was impacted by COVID. There were um, uh, uh, participants, 44 of them, so, so not an insignificant amount of people who um, – uh, missed their follow-up, so about 5%, a little bit over 5%, who missed their 96-week follow-up due to COVID. So um, uh, if you look at the uh, primary outcome, uh, which is actually this virologic failure endpoint, very, very rare. Um, uh, and, and in fact, less with the two-drug than with the three-drug, but very, very rare. And and here you can see that the difference um, is zero you know, 0.8 um, uh, percent, um, the, uh, the numbers are exceedingly small, um, uh, uh, really literally on the order of two or three people um, in in each arm had uh, a virologic failure. If we look at the proportion remaining suppressed, um, the, the, in the, if you look at the um, essentially snapshot analysis where those people that are missing due to COVID are considered failures, um, again, favors the two drug regimen, um, uh, numerically, but, but again, very similar. If you do an analysis where, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, those people that missed, uh, due to COVID are, are, uh, excluded, then, then you see a slightly better result, which is what you would expect. Um, uh, and, and I think this is reasonable, but again, kind of, modestly numerically favors the two drug therapy. And then on the right-hand side of the slide, you can see that no matter where you look, either younger people, um, uh, older people, women, men, um, uh, and, and by uh, uh, race, essentially, um, most, you know, cross the line of zero, but in general kind of favor two drug therapy. I, I think, you know, from and no resistance emerged in either arm um, uh, over over this approximately two year period. So I think these are kind of very uh, clear information that this two drug therapy in people who are suppressed is a, 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 certainly a very um, uh, robust therapy. Um, uh, again, people with hepatitis B would would not be active hepatitis B would not be uh, a candidate for this treatment, but really other people that haven't failed treatment previously and are suppressed on a, a three drug therapy, this really seems like a, a really good alternative. I'm not going to talk about this, but only to remind you that, that for people who are suppressed, you now have another option. You have cobletegravirpivirine every four weeks. And at Croy, we saw every eight weeks. And obviously Sue's gone into that in, in great detail. So I, I don't need to, um, so now uh, getting to our, um, uh, what about um, antiretroviral therapy for, for second line and um, and beyond? And again, in in the, um, uh, at CROI, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, the, I think the really important studies focused on studies that were done in the developing world. But interestingly, I think they do sort of apply to us here in, in um, uh, the, uh, the resource Rich, uh, or richer anyway, environment. So, so the first one to talk about, um, is just this study that was done by, uh, Thibaut Davy Mendez. He's actually a former, 
a PhD student of mine um, who's now uh, at uh, Kaiser and, and UCSF. Uh, but he wanted, and this is in um, in uh, a U.S. Uh, cohort, he wanted to characterize um, uh, first-line virologic failure. And his idea, which I think um, is very um, and instructive, is he, he wanted to um, uh, really broadly define it, right? So, so he used the databases, um, again, the, the uh, multiple, uh, a collaborative cohort, um, and, and had almost 7,000 first-line patients. Uh, uh, and he defined failure very broadly, meaning after starting therapy, 20 week, 24 weeks after starting therapy, a single viral load greater than 200 was considered failure in a very broad definition. Um, and, and, and 21% of people actually met that definition, uh, at two years and 37%, uh, at eight years. Um, big number. Um, but when you kind of, uh, dial down, which is over here on the top right, um, you can see that, um, uh, uh, 7%, uh, 7.6% were actually just off ART. They'd stopped ART. There was no evidence that they were being treated. Uh, another 15%, um, it was never confirmed. So these are likely people that were lost to follow-up. So that's the other, um, uh, that's a large proportion. Um, some people had a, a viral load um, and it was available uh, and a, some percentage uh, without changing therapy resuppressed. So that's 6%. So now we're down to about uh, 8.5% of people. And then... Um, Maybe some of us would say that the, kind of the if you're looking at observational data, virologic failure with then a switch in your regimen probably is a very uh, specific definition of virologic failure. And over eight years, he could only find that documented 2.4 percent of the time. And, and that's what you see down here. And I think what that's what, what that's telling us is that. Um, uh, and I think most experienced clinicians in this audience probably understand this, that. The, the kind of what some people might call true virologic failure. So actually virologic rebound related to um, uh, failure of the therapy and then switching therapy because you feel that the therapy was not successful is very uncommon. 2% of the time over eight years. On the other hand, all these other things like the patient uh, doesn't take their therapy or can't take their therapy or loses their insurance. Uh, the, the person has lost a follow up, which unfortunately, you know, happens or um, uh, the, the um, uh, person actually comes back and, and they've kind of reengaged with their treatment and they resuppress without having to change therapy is, is really what we see. And on the bottom left are, are some uh, uh, um, rate ratios of, of, of how uh, factors that uh, looked at the overall virologic failure. And, and um, not surprising, but again, I think reassuring that we're certainly in the right direction with our first line recommendations. Uh, all this uh, 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 virologic fear was uncommon, uh, less common with integrase compared to any other uh, regimen. And also uh, uh, every year of time that passed, uh, virologic failure became less and less common. Um, uh, so again, about by about 8% per year. So really um, uh, demonstrating that our therapy is getting better, that first-line integrase inhibitor therapy is really where we should be going. And, and we can, we're not going to talk about fat. We could argue about fat for a long time. 
Um, and, and I think these data help support what we're doing. Um, uh, I think this is a neat study done in Africa. It was actually a trial to look to see whether um, uh, resistance testing uh, actually was uh, um, uh, benefited uh, uh, patients who had first-line failure. Mark Seidner from the from the Mass General, who also works in in South Africa, um, and, <clears throat> um, uh, he looked at a, actually a randomized trial of resistance testing, which I, I'm sure was no simple thing to do. Um, uh, these are people uh, in public sites, so, so uh, government-funded sites. Um, they had to be on first art for five months. They had to have a viral load uh, greater than a thousand in the past three months, which is, you know, kind of the international uh, definition of virologic failure. They they couldn't have been on a PI because that's second line, um, at least at the time in in uh, uh, southern Africa. And the primary outcome was. Um, was the viral load suppressed nine months after enrollment and, and people were either, uh, a standard of care, a standard of care, uh, is to retest viral load, repeat, and then if they are persistently failure, then go to, uh, viral load guided management, meaning if they're greater than a thousand, they would go to second line. Uh, if they weren't greater than a thousand, they would continue on first line. Uh, and the other arm was, um, uh, they would get a resistance test. And, and whether the switch to second line was guided by the resistance test. Um, uh, so if, if there uh, was evidence of resistance, they would switch to second line, which is protease inhibitor based. If not, they, they would be given intensive adherence counseling uh, and, and try to uh, su- suppress their viral load. And if you'd asked me ahead of time, I would have said, well, yeah, I mean, it may not be a big impact, but, but resistance testing should make a difference. Um, but uh, resistance testing made no difference in the primary outcome. Um, uh, red is standard of care. Gray is um, with resistance testing. And this is the proportion less than 200 nine months after entry into the study. And and the, I think you could agree there there is no significant difference here. If you looked at below the limit of detection, also no difference. Um, there wasn't it didn't help retain people in care. It didn't make a difference in survival. This is always to the right. One thing it did do, um, which um, I, I think, you know, you could argue this is important, um, uh, it lessened the degree of resi- uh, failure without resistance. So they did go back and um, uh, uh, they did go back and um, uh, look at um, uh, samples from people in both groups and looked at uh, whether people failed uh, with resistance. And um, it was um, uh, more common for the participants with virologic, without resistance testing, it's more common for them to fail with resistance. I probably would have flipped this around. It would be a little bit easier to talk about. But but basically, um, uh, um, it was more likely uh, to have drug failure without resistance um, in in people who had gotten resistance testing and have treatment guided. So, um, so do we do we really need resistance testing with first line failure? Probably here in the U.S. we do because our first line is very different, um, uh, and and I don't think this will change our standard. Um, but it does help understand um, what should be done in resource more, more resource limited settings. And unfortunately, I think this will have to be repeated um, when um, uh, Dalia Tegavir becomes the, the 
standard in in the uh, developing uh, un, uh, resource limited setting. It, it is the recommended standard, and 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 it's becoming the standard. Once it is uh, uh, the, the agent that's predominantly used in first line, we're going to have to understand what to do about second line. Um, and and these are the various virologic outcomes, but you really can see there's kind of really no no difference. Um, uh, between the, the two groups, though, though the different categories are, are, are slightly different. Um, and then the, the, um, uh, I, I have a couple more minutes that here we'll, we'll talk about, um, uh, what about a second line therapy comparing Dalutegra with the, uh, Darunavir Ritonavir? This is a Nadia study. Um, this is a really interesting study. Again, it's first line failure with NNRTI. So you might say, well, um, how does this apply to the, uh, uh, the uh, more resource-rich setting? And I'll, I'll, I'll give you my take in a second. Um, so this was a two-by-two two factorial design. So these were people, again, failing on an uh, NNRTI-based regimen. Everybody had to be on TDF. This is really important. And the first randomization was to dalutegravir versus darunavir-ritonavir. And then the second randomization was to stay on TDF3TC. So don't switch anything but the uh, dalutegravir. So switching the NNRTI to dalutegravir or uh, switching to at least one active agent, that would be the zidovudine. Um, and with darunavir, same thing. If you randomize to darunavir, um, either you stay on the same nucleosides or you switch nucleosides so you get one additional active agent and um, and then there was follow-up. And, and here are the demographics over on the right. Nothing too uh, surprising here, except that um, <laughs> a lot of people had tenofovir resistance, 50%. Almost everybody had uh, FTC or 3DC resistance, uh, 86%. So lots of nucleoside resistance. Um, and some of you probably remember, if you have both uh, a K103N and an M184V, at least in the, in the laboratory, your virus is very sensitive to zidovudine, at least in the lab. Um, so, uh, I, I'm sure you could probably guess the outcome here, at least for the first part. There was no difference between dalutegravir and, and darunavir, and I'm not going to belabor this. They were very, very similar. Um, uh, 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 though there were a few, uh, participants for, uh, that developed dalutegravir resistance versus none that developed darunavir tonavir resistance. So four out of, um, uh, 235. So, so about, uh, 2%, a little bit less than 2%. So that's, you know, that's not zero, um, which is interesting. Um, uh, but what surprised me is there was absolutely no advantage to switching to zidovudine. So an agent that should really provide additional activity and, and in the tenofovir group, you're, you're essentially only switching one drug. These are all people on TDF FTC. You switch one drug. And, and your outcome less than 400 was 92%. So to me, that kind of flies in the face of our current recommendations, um, uh, for second line therapy that you should choose two active drugs. Um, in this case, you didn't have to choose two active drugs. In fact, you all just continuing the nukes. And this is this mystical nucleoside thing that we've talked about for years, probably have some continued uh, activity and, and, you know, they, they, they went into very nice detail here, uh, you know, showing really no difference, uh, whether it's tenofovir, zidovudine, high viral load, low viral load, no difference, high CD4, low CD4, no difference. Um, and then if you, um, uh, like always, if you had um, no active drugs, 
you actually did the best. <laughs> and that's probably because you took your first line, uh, no active drugs in addition, no active nukes in addition to uh, uh, dietary darunavir. And if you had two active nukes, meaning no resistance, you did worse. And that's probably a measure of adherence. Some people believe it's also a measure of fitness, which which could be true. Um, but I think this really kind of um, tells us a lot about um, uh, nucleosides in, in second line and, and our, our need really to, to try to find a second active drug in second line therapy. Um, so finally, I just want to say a few words. And this, these slides were, were kindly um given to me by Raj Gandhi. Uh, this is the IMPACT 2020 or VESTED study. This was a, a study in pregnant women, a phase three study looking at Dalutegor FTC-TAF versus Dalutegor uh, uh, FTC-TDF versus the standard of care and treatment um, uh, 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 in resource-limited settings, Favrin's uh, FTC-TDF. Uh, and uh, this has been presented previously um, uh, these are young women, uh, mostly enrolled in Africa. They mostly enrolled when they were uh, around uh, in the second uh, trimester. Uh, and, and what we learned from this study kind of virologically is that dalutegravir was superior in terms of virologic efficacy, in, in terms of proportion of women whose viral loads were suppressed at delivery. Time to suppression was faster or shorter with dalutegravir-based art. These are things we know. What we didn't know, and, and we were very, I think, at least some of us were surprised. Uh, Elaine probably wasn't, but I was surprised uh, that uh, that in terms of adverse outcomes, um, actually, um, dalutegravir TAF FTC had the fewest adverse outcomes. And if you looked at uh, neonatal death, it was actually less frequent uh, with dalutegravir FTC TAF versus the efavirenz-based therapy. So. So I think an important finding and one uh, we need to think about here in the U.S. And the reasons for that um, uh, were hypothesized at the um, at the CROI meeting. And one thing that Dietegger FTC TAF allowed is it allowed women to gain weight pretty much normally during pregnancy. And and normal weight gain is a good sign in terms of infant outcomes. And and that may be part of what's going on here. Um, so uh, uh, in the end, if we look at our pregnancy guidelines, this is as of February, um, what we see is uh, uh, a couple things. One is now TAF FTC appears as an alternative NRTI. And I wonder um, going forward, is it, is it, will it become a, a, a preferred NRTI in, in women who are pregnant? Um, uh, not yet, at least according to the DHHS, though, though I'm sure they're digesting this. And then, Dalutegravir is a preferred um, antiretroviral therapy, as, as mentioned by uh, uh, Elaine in the discussion section uh, uh, with Sue. Um, uh, it's preferred ART throughout pregnancy in any uh, woman who's trying to conceive. So, so that's my presentation, and I'm ready uh, to answer questions if we have time. I'm sorry, uh, I probably went over. So Elaine, I'm hoping it's coming back. Yeah. No, I'm coming back. I'm here. Thank you for that fabulous talk and just remind me of all the gems that were presented presented at CROI and you really helped us understand the findings. Um, we are running late, but we do have two questions that have been submitted. So why don't we turn to those? And then if others come up, Joe, I'll ask you to answer them directly in the Q&A. Sure. Um, asked, would you switch someone on effective three-drug ART to two-drug dalitegravir 3-TC? 
if they have potentially have archive 184 mutation? Um, well, my answer is my short answer. No, I wouldn't do that at this point. I think there are data that suggests it's probably okay in most people, but I think in the one or two people, that's not, you know, there isn't enough data to do that. I wouldn't do it. Okay. And another participant is asking, is inflammation now drives significant difference in morbidity and mortality for people living with HIV? Do you think that we have enough information about inflammation in two versus three drug regimens to begin? Yeah, I actually do think so. There was one study from Spain that suggested there was more inflammation with two drugs versus three drugs, but that was not the two drug regimen that was studied in the Tango study or in the Gemini study. I think there's enough information that's been looked at in those studies and there are other studies that are ongoing. So I think the answer to this is yes, there's enough information. And I do apologize again for going over. No, as I said, I think everybody appreciated all the information. So I think we can stop now. If other questions arise, you can answer them directly. And we're supposed to have a break. It'll be 24 minutes. We'll reconvene at 2.20 Eastern. And look forward to the rest of the afternoon. Thank you.